This is a Squeeze podcast. We're your shortcut to being informed. Hello and welcome to Ask the Squiz. It's our weekend stroll through the burning questions that squizzes have about the 2022 election. I'm Larissa Moore. And I'm Claire Kimball. I know we said we were at the halfway mark of the election campaign last week, so my question is, do we celebrate the two-thirds mark this week, Claire? (laughs) I guess we can, but (laughs) next week, um, at the end of next week, it's five out of six weeks, and I don't think you can put that into a neat (laughs) fraction, so maybe we don't celebrate it as much as just note it and move on. And move on, just that the countdown is happening. Whatever it is, we are well past the public holidays at all rates, and it does feel like things have really gone up a notch this week. There were some serious issues in focus, economic management, monetary policy, managing inflation. And that's even before we get into the Solomon Islands and China and all of that national security stuff. But what caught Squiz's attention this week were process issues and local campaigns. So let's get into the questions. Regula kicks us off today with a question about the way the major party leaders do their campaigning. She says she doesn't know anyone who has attended an event when a PM or a Premier has visited her electorate. She reckons most voters don't care and that while the substance of the policies are important, they can be announced without the leaders having to travel so much. And look, that's a perfectly valid point of view. Uh, I don't think it's going to be news to most politicians that a lot of people are pretty nonplussed about seeing them. Uh, But there are plenty who do want to see their local MP out and about in the community. And they also want to see our political leaders uh, aren't locked in their offices in Parliament House and detached from us all day, every day. Uh, But I'd start by saying that it's something that has to be done throughout the term, not just in the weeks of an election campaign, because Mm. as the saying goes, you can't fatten a pig on market day. Yeah, and by that you mean really they should consistently be out there being a people person, showing that they care about the lives of Australians and that they're available to see and hear the stories of the people around them. So then when they get into a campaign, it's not that weird to see them popping up. Yeah, exactly right. And that is the point. Um, They travel to be in touch with people and understand their problems and to show them the respect that they're due, um, that they're not so high and mighty that they can't visit a factory or a farm or a school. And, of course, what the public don't see are the meetings and the discussions that go along with those visits. Uh, Those happen without the cameras. But back to Regula's point, not a lot of those meetings would probably be happening while on the campaign trail. The goose is already cooked. So what's the point of it all? Yeah, it's an interesting question because there's a bit of an innovation gap, I think, in the campaigns. Um, Non-stop travel campaigns were important in the olden days before social media and the internet and the 24-hour news cycle uh, because physically going to a place was the only way you could really deliver your message to the local people and their local media. Mm. Uh, But now the news doesn't stop and everything's instant all the time. Uh, But there's something about a visit to demonstrate your understanding of an issue, uh, even in this day and age, and that you have the right policies in place to deal with them. And that's quite powerful. And really, it wouldn't be an election campaign without the campaign trail. So that's something to keep in mind as well. 
Ellen has a question about the campaign launches. She wants to know why they have an official launch after weeks of campaigning have already been done. What is the campaign launch and is there a point to it? Yeah, we touched on this in our Squiz the Election episode about the campaign trail this week and there's an administrative answer. Um, After the party that's in government officially launches their campaign, they start paying for their own travel costs. Mm. Uh, Before that, it's taxpayer funded uh, and it means that they have to then fork out thousands of dollars. So you can kind of see why the coalition hasn't held theirs (laughs) yet. Uh, And there's just two weeks to go in the campaign. There is also PR value in it too. You get the whole team together along with a lot of luminaries of the past, those big party figures. The leader also gets to deliver a rousing speech. Yeah, and there's a formula to those campaign launches too. So usually what happens is that there's a warm-up act, a deputy leader or someone who's a bit of a popular figure in the party who delivers a speech uh, with all of the hard hits on their opponents. Uh, They say all the nasty stuff about how awful they are and how their policies stink and they also throw in a couple of laughs and then uh, you're away. The leader then gets to take the stage and look very leaderly or (laughs) prime ministerial, as they say, uh, while outlining their vision and their policies. And there's a lot of clapping. It's the most supportive crowd they're probably going to (laughs) get. I always wonder how sore people's hands are after all that (laughs) clapping at hours-long launches. Speaking of the leaders and their images, Nikki wants to know how relevant the preferred Prime Minister polling is compared to two-party preferred results. She points out that the election campaigns are now more presidential with the focus on the Prime Minister and the opposition leader. Hi, Nikki. This is a tricky one, so (laughs) bear with me. Uh, The person who's Prime Minister is usually rated the better Prime Minister in those polls. That's because it's often hard for people to think about the opposition leader in the Prime Minister's position. Uh, I think the more interesting measure in those polls is the satisfaction rating. Mm. Uh, News poll, for example, asks those survey respondents, and this is the question, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way the Prime Minister is doing his job? Uh, Are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way the leader of the opposition is doing his job? Um, So what you want to get to is a a net positive result. You want more people saying that they're satisfied with your performance than dissatisfied. Uh, And the thinking is that the Prime Minister really wants their net approval rating to be in positive territory uh, as they turn the corner into the election. So as Nikki asks, how do these kinds of polls bear on the result compared to that two-party preferred poll result? Yeah, so plenty of analysts still subscribe to the theory that voters know that they're picking their local MP um, and they're not voting for a prime minister. They're voting for their local representative. It's a generalisation, though. There's plenty of people who will vote a certain way because of their view of the leader. Mm. Um, But when it comes to checking the polls and the results, that two-party preferred measure and the primary vote numbers are the way to go. On that measure, it's Labor in front as we head into the last two weeks. But if you did want to know the current preferred Prime Minister, it's Scott Morrison on 45, Anthony Albanese on 39 and 16 uncommitted. And they are both in negative territory on satisfaction, Albanese on minus nine and Morrison on minus seven. Claire Dane is in the seat of Higgins and he is one very informed chap. 
He says Liberal Katie Allen holds it by 2% and is being challenged by strong female Greens and Labor candidates, yet their particular battle is not being mentioned a lot in the media. He wants to know why no one seems interested in Higgins, despite the margin being smaller for the incumbent than in seats like Kuyong and Goldstein. I really like this question from Dane and he's spot on. Uh, What it points to is that there's all of these local campaigns going on and just because they're not in the national media doesn't mean that they're not a thing. Mm. Um, So just on the seat of Higgins, it was held by Peter Costello, of course, the former treasurer in the Howard government, uh, and then Kelly O'Dwyer. It's Blue Ribbon Liberal Territory in Melbourne, uh, or at least it was. And this time around, it's the coalition's eighth most marginal seat. Uh, But on the question about why it's not a high-profile seat. Um, Last time it was in focus because there was a high-profile Greens candidate running uh, and also Alan was going around for the first time, so it was a bit of an unknown. Uh, And there's not a Climate 200 candidate running in Higgins this time around and there's a bit of a narrative forming around those teal independents, so there's a lot of focus on them. So in terms of national attention, it's probably that there's other battles soaking up that attention Uh, like Josh Frydenberg's battle in the neighbouring seat of Kuong. There's also the fact that Katie Allen isn't a minister, so she has a lower profile. But it is one of the many races to keep an eye on, so thanks for putting it pretty firmly on our radar, Dane. Now, Matt lives in the ACT, and he says he feels like the Territory is underrepresented in the Senate, and he wants to know why ACT senators are up for election every three years, whereas the states get six-year terms. Love a bit of parochialism from the ACT. Go Canberra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and a technical question. <laughs> exactly. Now, the territories, so the Northern Territory and the Australian Capital Territory, um, got Senate representation in 1975. So I guess reasonably recently. Uh, it was quite controversial at that time. There were plenty who said that it shouldn't happen because the Senate was seen as the state's house. Um, so the arrangement is a Function of those negotiations to get them in um, to senators who get three-year terms, not six-year terms like those from the states. They also have a smaller population than the states, although when you think about it, Tasmania has a pretty small population too. So you never know, Matt. Start a campaign, make some change, get the ball rolling. Some great questions this week, Claire. I feel like they're a little bit harder this week. Maybe squizzes have their political election eye in. What caught your eye on the campaign trail this week? Uh, for me, it's a pretty obvious one. That interest rate hike on Tuesday, yeah. uh, it was a thud that landed mm-hmm. um, pretty much as heavily as that inflation rate did earlier in the campaign. Uh, and it's hard to explain to people that they're going to pay more for their mortgages because our economy is stronger than expected. Um, there's so much going on with the economy and so many moving pieces. So you can be forgiven if you're feeling a bit confused about all of that. There sure is a lot going on. I think uh, for me this week, it was Albanese stumbling to recall Labor's NDIS policy points on Thursday. Mm. Of course, there was that big moment early in the campaign where he couldn't recall the cash rate and the unemployment rate. The media are pushing really hard on these gotcha moments. And with pre-polling opening up on Monday and two more leaders debates this coming week, both Albanese and Morrison are going to need to be on their game and across their policies and figures that for sure. Yeah, good one. There's a bit of sharpening up to go. Yeah. That's it for this week. We've got a lot more squizzy election episodes coming up though, Claire. 
Yep, we do lots of those state and seat profiles. And we're also having a chat to the Australian Electoral Commission about Mm. preferential and proportional voting. We've had lots of questions about how that works and we've called in the big guns. (laughs) We've called in the officials for these ones. (laughs) Any more questions, of course, shoot them through to hello at thesquiz.com.au. We're having a blast answering them. So anything you've got, hit us up. That's all for now. Until next time. message now from our podcast partner, Sunbeam. With so many unhealthy snacks on offer, it can be hard to find something to keep your kids satisfied and happy. Sunbeam's dried fruit and cheese chilled snacks contain only real fruit and real cheese with no artificial colours or flavours. And they're a great source of calcium. It's a snack you can feel good about giving them while you're on the go. Pick up a pack today in the dairy fridge at your local Woolworths, Coles or independent retailer.